Good morning, Cornerstone. I feel a little bit too happy for this message I'm about to preach. It's a wonderful worship this morning. Some, some days just catch you. <clears throat> Hope you enjoy it. His, uh, his name was John Durbin. He was a friend of mine. More than just being a friend, he was my battle buddy, they called him. He was the one designated by my platoon sergeant to be my buddy in combat to have my back in times of peace or in times of war. John Durbin, when I say his name, I can always remember his face. And John was preparing to travel home for the Christmas break from Fort Belvoir, Virginia. He'd been home homesick for a long time and he was longing to see those rolls of corn and he talked about it to me every day, how beautiful it was. He was telling me how they party down in Idaho or over in Idaho. He said, man, we sing and we dance in the fields all night long into the wee hours of the morning. Calvin, it is amazing. Idaho living. <laughs> Idaho doesn't sound very exciting. Doesn't look very exciting when you visit, but so said John Durbin, it was the place to be. And as he was telling me of his plans when he went home, I felt compelled to give John Durbin a warning. And I said, now John, listen man, you know that drinking and driving is dangerous. I gave him the statistics and how many people had died that year so far due to drunken driving. I told him how alcohol impairs the vision and impairs the mind. Be careful, John, don't go home and drink too much. John Durbin smiled at me and patted me on the shoulder and said, Calvin, you worry too much. And he laughed and we laughed and he left. Two weeks later, our first sergeant called an emergency formation. John wasn't back yet and he called us into formation with some bad news and he informed us that John Durbin was driving drunk through the rolls of corn in Idaho and he lost control of his car and he met his demise when he veered off of the road. The cause of death, so said the first sergeant, was drunken driving. But I knew what the real cause of death was. The real cause of his death was Willful ignorance. Willful ignorance can be defined as deliberate avoidance, disregard, or disagreement with the truth. Disregard for empirical evidence because one disputes or one differs from, it differs from one's personal beliefs. If I had to describe the 21st century with only two words, those would be the two words. Willful ignorance. Willful ignorance is a form of self-deception. It is a psychological phenomenon. It is a defense mechanism that we create in order to feel safe, or comfortable or in control of our lives and in the world. Willful ignorance can also be described as willful blindness, conscious avoidance, ignorance of the rules that govern life and that govern nature. Willful ignorance, deliberate stupidity, manufactured unawareness. Whether we consider the Y2K superstition of the year 2000, where millions and millions of people around the world came to believe without any proof that the world was going to end on January 1st, 2000. Who remembers that? Willful ignorance. Or even if we travel down to Florida where children are being taught that chattel slavery was somehow good for black folk. <laughs> Willful 
ignorance. Our world and this era in which we live is marked by a deliberate and cynical non-awareness of truth and of fact. I don't need to name all of the lies that we're being exposed to every day. You know them very well. And even when people are directly confronted with the truth, somehow they manage to deflect it. In my humble opinion, willful ignorance poses the greatest danger to the world today. But this danger is not limited to the world. Willful ignorance has also crept into the church of Jesus Christ. And it shows up in his church in the form of reprisal and of revamping of the gospel message. A recasting of the biblical narrative and a rejection of the truth. It is a movement that seeks to exchange sound doctrine for moral and worldly ideologies. And then to imprint those ideologies onto the word of God in an effort to recreate a more palatable gospel that allows their consciences to sleep at night. It is a psychological phenomenon. And the people who find themselves immersed in willful ignorance are merely attempting to make sense of the seeming dysfunctions, dichotomies, and moral dilemmas that a clear and simple reading of the biblical text does in fact provoke. They want to right the wrongs of past generations of saints. They want to broaden the tent in order to accommodate all those who seem to be outside of the plan of God. They want to create a religion that is easy on their own consciences because the gospel, as represented from a plain reading of the text, the gospel feels offensive to their moral palate. For many of them, God and his word are an empty canvas, colored and shaped by their opinions. The word of God is directed according to their moral compasses. They create their God in their own image, they fashion him after their own likeness, and they present their gospel as an alternative to the truth of God himself. They begin with the question, and it's a question I want to pose to you today. Here is the question. If God granted you the right and the authority to revamp the gospel message for the 21st century, what aspects of the gospel would you change? If God gave you permission today and said, listen, Calvin, I have this problem. I'm having a hard time finding new converts. I think my message has gotten stale and it may be too unappealing to the masses. So Calvin, I am commissioning you to take my word and to recast it in a way that makes me seem more likable, that makes me seem less abrasive and more unassertive and unassuming. If God commissioned you to revamp the gospel of Jesus Christ, how would you adjust it? How would you go about changing the word to make it more palatable to people? Hmm. What I am really asking you to do is to review from your memory the gospel and the biblical narrative as you understand them and to identify those portions of the Bible that rub you the wrong way. <laughs> All of us got some. Those portions of the Bible that rub you the wrong way. Those decisions of God that seem questionable at least and downright unfair at best. For example, since everybody's looking at me with a blank stare, for example, why is David called a man after God's own heart? 
when David seemed to have been nothing more than a womanizing, murderous, and overly ambitious man. Why would God call him a man after my own heart? That doesn't seem to make sense. Or in the book of Acts, why was the husband and wife struck down by God for withholding their offering, but Judas, a thief, was allowed to oversee Jesus' money bags? That doesn't seem to make sense. These simple questions, these simple questions do not compare to the major theological and biblical questions being asked by self-deceivers today. But you get my point. There are aspects of the Bible that seem to be unfair, that seem not to make good sense. There are aspects of the Bible, you may as well admit it, that do not sit well with you. There are certain decisions, certain things that God does in Scripture that accost your sense of morality. Which leads us to our question for today. What should we do with those aspects of God's plan for humanity that feel too narrow and too exclusive for our liking? How should we respond to God when he seems to so apparently show and express bias? What do you do with that? I know what you're asking right now, and the answer is no. No, I am not a progressive Christian. Neither was Paul the apostle. But just like Paul, I can understand how one might be tempted to rewrite or to reinterpret the scriptures in an effort to make a gospel that you can be proud of, a gospel that you can fully de uh, defend with your own intellect, a gospel that makes more human sense. I can see how one could be tempted to do that, to make a message that aligns with human morality and our sense of fairness. I can understand the temptation sometimes to do that. And as we learn from Romans chapter 9, Paul the apostle can understand it as well. Hmm. Not only can Paul the apostle understand it, but Paul himself was also tempted to become what in today's vernacular would be called a progressive Christian. Paul was tempted to become a progressive Christian. You see, since Romans chapter one, Paul has been informing and proving to us from the scriptures that there is none righteous, not even one. Paul has been laboring to help us see that the children of God are not under the law but under grace and the people of God are not one specific group, not one specific race, not one specific class. But the true children of God are born of the Spirit of God. And we have celebrated as God through his Son and through his Gospel has rent the temple in two and made for us room in his kingdom by his grace and by his love. As Paul has been explaining this for eight chapters, we have been celebrating. And of course, we all imagine that Paul the Apostle was just as ecstatic as we are as to what God had done. But it turns out that Paul may not be quite as happy about all of this as we had imagined. This is very interesting. No, Paul wasn't as excited about this new gospel way as we are. Paul has a dilemma. There is something about this new salvific plan that Paul himself is proclaiming. He is preaching this new plan. But there's something about it that seems to make Paul more than a little uncomfortable. Something about the broadening of the tent and opening of the heaven's doors that gives him pause. And for just a brief moment, 
Paul is confronted with the progressive dilemma. Just for a brief moment. Paul opens up and shows the real strength, the real deceptive attractiveness of the progressive mindset. In verse one he testifies and says this, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. Hmm. What he wants us to know from this is that what he is about to say is not merely conjecture. It is not just some shallow impression, some shallow idea. It is the truth about himself as he understands himself. It is a real thought, a forceful and emotional response to the gospel that comes from deep within him. I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Furthermore, my conscience testifies with me. And so this thought, whatever this thought is Paul is about to tell us, this thought that Paul is about to express is a product of his conscience. He just told us that. My conscience testifies with me. What is conscience? Conscience is an inner feeling. Conscience is that inner voice that guides us to discern right from wrong and good from evil. Paul says, my conscience testifies with me. This truth of himself that Paul is about to express to us then is a matter of his personal morality, his personal sense of what is right and what is wrong. And we, you and I, we should be as cautious as Paul to discern between what is actually right versus what we view to be right. Paul lets us know right there, what I'm about to say is not the gospel. This is my own, my own conscience. This is my own inner voice. We must be just as cautious as Paul to discern between our own consciences and the truth of God's word because human conscience is subjective. Humans is subjective and we must never allow ourselves to supplant the truth as God has revealed it with the subjective perspective of the ideal world as we might imagine it. This ability, this spiritual wisdom turns out to be Paul's saving virtue. It is the only way that Paul is able to resist following through on the dictates of his own conscience, contrary to God's word. Paul is fully aware that his conscience is subjective and that his conscience could be wrong. Paul also knows that in the matter he is about to share with us, his conscience is absolutely wrong. He already knows it. But he has a feeling. And Paul is not afraid of his feelings. Because Paul feels no obligation to accept or to follow his conscience. It's just a feeling. Paul the apostle is led by the Spirit of God, which is what he says next. He says, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is aware that I hold this particular view. The Holy Spirit knows what I am thinking and the Holy Spirit knows how I am feeling about this particular aspect of God's plan. And by allowing the Holy Spirit in and not trying to hide away from his discontent, the Holy Spirit is able to help him stand between these two great forces. The force of his own conscience and the truth of God's word. And by the Holy Spirit, Paul has the ability to not succumb to the alluring temptation to replace God's truth with the lie that his conscience is promoting. 
Stay with me. This is healthy and helpful for all of us to begin to discern, to decipher what, what morality, what of your morality is simply your own conscience and what comes from the truth of God's word. Furthermore, Paul transparently confesses that the root of his conscientious dilemma is fueled by his own strong emotion. Stay with me. It is fueled by his own strong emotion. Look at what he says in verse two. I have great sorrow. And I have unceasing, unrelenting grief in my heart. Sounds like depression. I have great sorrow. And I have a, an unceasing grief in, my, grief in my heart. And in this we all should be warned that strong emotion is more often than not a product of our own making and not necessarily generated by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. These strong emotions that Paul is living under are fueled by his own personal burning sense of what is right, what is just, and what is fair. And now let's take a look at the debilitating and self-defeating power of Paul's strong emotions. He says, my sorrow is so great. My conscience is so frustrated by the plan of God as it has been revealed to me, verse three, that I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ. Wait a minute. Whoa. I wasn't expecting that. Paul says, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. My heart is heavy and filled with grief. So much so to the point that I am even considering, <laughs> my goodness, be becoming accursed and being separated from Jesus Christ. What could possibly be worth all of this? I, I can't wait to hear what you're talking about. This, you sound like you're losing your mind. What could possibly be worth all of this? What could possibly be, being, be, be worth being cursed by God and being separated from Jesus? Paul loves Jesus. Paul has sacrificed his life and his reputation. Paul has sacrificed his prospects and his prestige to follow Jesus. What could possibly be so important to Paul that he would be willing to throw that all away? We'll get to that in a moment. But first, let us also observe the fact that strong emotion fueled by a warped conscience can cause us to blow things way out of proportion. This is completely over the top. Strong emotion fueled by a warped conscience can cause us to blow things way out of proportion, can cause us to go so far over the top that we lose ourselves in irrational ecstasy. That we come to view ourselves and our ideas as superior and worth losing everything for. These are the self-annihilating, self-sabotaging, and self-deceptive attributes of a willful ignorance. And this level of willful ignorance produces a hero complex, the illusion that somehow, some way, I can face down reality. Somehow, some way, I can face down the truth and wrestle truth to the ground because my cause is so just and my cause is so virtuous that even the heavens must bow to my will. Paul says, I am so emotionally distraught by this gospel message that I myself am called to preach. That I could wish that I myself were cursed and separated from Jesus Christ. 
My conscience is so resolute and my emotions are so strong that I could wish that I myself were cursed by God, separated from Jesus. Why? Why, Paul? What are you talking about? Where are you going with this? Why? For the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Oh. And this is the gospel issue that Paul is struggling with. This is the gospel issue that Paul is struggling to accept. That as far as Paul understands it, God has cast off his people Israel. But Paul has been raised to believe that his people are the special people. Paul has been trained and taught that his people are the people who are forever blessed of God. Paul has been taught and he has internalized the idea of the preeminency of Israel. But now after Jesus Christ has gotten a hold of him and for over 14 years showed Paul what was already right there in the text all the time, the fact that God's plan was always about the whole world and not just about Israel. That God's chosen people were always people of the Spirit. and They were never localized to any particular people group. That God didn't come to save groups, but God came to save individual people. Whoa. Paul is having a hard time accepting that. And what he is saying here is that he is tempted to become, listen to this, because this is what he said. Paul is saying, I am tempted to become the sacrifice for my own people. Whoa. He didn't do it, but he's just letting you know where he is. I am so frustrated by this new plan of God where Israel, my own people, have been cast aside that I'm thinking about becoming their savior on my own. That's what he said. He didn't do it. But he sounds like he could. He sounds like he's walking right on the periphery of apostasy. I'm quiet for a reason. Even the apostle got to be careful with the doctrines we accept. We've got to be careful what kind of doctrine we allow to come into our spirit. Some of this stuff can contaminate you and your own conscience and your own strong emotions can make a fool of you and cause you to lose your place. Paul is on the verge right there of losing his place. He is completely out of order. This thought is completely insane. To make matters even worse, let's think about it for a moment. The only way that Paul could become the sacrifice for Israel is if Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. And that's just where his strong emotion and his strong sense of right and wrong is trying to lead him. Jesus' sacrifice is not enough. So you're saying, Jesus, that you don't want Israel. Well, if you don't want, if Jesus doesn't want them, if Jesus' tent is too small to accommodate them, then I am tempted to abandon Jesus, be cursed by God, and become a safe haven for them on my own. Oh, you're out of order. You have lost your way. Hmm. I'll just say this again, however. This is the thought that he's having. This is the feeling that he's having, and he knows that the Holy Spirit is aware of it. So is the Holy Spirit angry with Paul? No, it's just a feeling. But if he acts on that, he's going to find himself in a world of trouble. He is saying, I am tempted to become the sacrifice for my own people. 
if you don't want them, Jesus, if your tent is too small, if your way is so narrow and you are so exclusive, I am tempted to abandon you. I am tempted to be cursed by God and become a safe haven for them on my own. I will do what God seems so unwilling to do. I will accept those whom God himself has rejected. I will make my own ark. and I will abandon the ark that God has given which is Jesus Christ. And I will create from scratch a new Christ. One who is not so exclusive. And you know why I'll do it? Because I think Israel is worth it. I think Israel is worth it, Paul says. After all, consider who they are. Paul says here in verse four, consider who they are. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption as sons and daughters of God. They were the first ones. They are Israelites. By them, God's glory has been revealed to the whole world. They are Israelites. To the Israelites, God has given the covenants. In fact, God has given the law through them. They are Israelites. They created the temple service from which we all take our cues to worship God, the creator. God gave them the precious promises. They're worth it. In verse 5, he continues to explain why the people of Israel deserve to be, they deserve to be saved. He says Israel is worth being cursed by God and separated from Jesus Christ because Israel, after all, produced the fathers of the faith. And furthermore, in verse 5, he says this, even Jesus Christ himself, according to the flesh, comes from Israel. That's how important they are. They deserve it. And I am so frustrated this new salvific plan of God that I am thinking maybe I need to go save them. That's what he said. It's right there in black and white. Fueled by strong emotion, by personal conscience, about to make shipwreck. Israel deserve it in Paul's opinion. They deserve a savior. They deserve heaven. But Paul's temporary enragement and Paul's momentary disillusionment has blinded him to a very obvious fact. A truth that he himself already understands from Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus Christ has already become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Paul understands this. He's saying, I'm willing to be a curse for my people Israel. And God is saying, Paul, Jesus Christ has already been a curse for Israel. What are you talking about? What Paul is tempted by conscience to do has already been done for Israel by Jesus. Not only has Jesus Christ become cursed for Israel so that Israel could be blessed, Jesus has also been separated from God so that Israel can be saved. For three days in the tomb, Paul, what you're talking about doing has already been done for Israel. But what Paul the apostle is tempted through strong emotion to say is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not enough. The terms upon which Israel could be saved are too inconvenient. And the way that God has made for Israel's redemption is inappropriate, ill-conceived, and beyond Israel's ability to accept. Oh, but if I were Israel's savior, things would be different around here. If I could be Israel's savior, I wouldn't require any adherence to any particular faith. If I were their savior, I wouldn't tell Israel they had to repent and allow the Holy Spirit to snatch them out of Judaism. They could stay in Judaism. They could worship and practice however they chose. If I were their savior, I would do salvation much differently than God is doing it. 
In fact, you know what? I don't know why God didn't think of this. But now the reformist says to himself, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe God did think of this. Maybe the Bible isn't as accurate regarding salvation as I've been taught. Maybe God did think of this. Maybe the Bible is not so accurate. But if the Bible is as I have been taught, then maybe the Bible is not as authoritative as we have assumed. And maybe the words that God said are not to be taken at face value. Submitting to a religious moral conscience that is fueled by strong personal emotion would have led Paul the apostle. And today it is leading many believers to revamp the entire gospel message, to reinterrogate the scriptures from their own preconceptions and to refashion God to refashion the purposes of God and his word according to their own sense of moral value. In their view, the Bible is to be understood as it is written, then the Bible is just wrong. In their view, if the Bible is to be understood in plain English, then the Bible is just incorrect. And this is what their discontent has led them to. This is also what was tempting Paul the apostle to say. Paul was tempted to say the same thing. But now Paul the apostle recovers and this is what he concludes in verse six. You know what, even though I'm willing to die for them and be cursed by God and separated from Jesus because I'm disgruntled, actually, you know, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants shall be named. What does all that mean? Let's make it more plain in verse eight. He restates it another way. In verse eight he says it this way. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And oh, now we understand what's going on here. Now we understand what's going on here with Paul. Now we understand the source of Paul's conscientious, emotive response to the plan of God for Israel. You know what it is? It is all due to Paul's misunderstanding of the plan of God from the beginning. You see, Paul the apostle had wrongly concluded that God promised to bless a specific people group from all the people groups of the world. And that special group was Abraham's physical descendants. And as it appeared in Paul's day, Israel was not particularly blessed by God. They were in bondage to Rome along with most of the world. They were not the head, they were the tail. And even this new gospel appears to have cast them to the side. And as Paul looked at their situation, None of this, none of their experiences lined up with the promises that God had made to Abraham. This doesn't make sense. And Paul is simply asking, what gives? Is the word of God true or is it not? Does God keep his promises or does he not? And if not, if God has not made a place for Israel according to the flesh, then maybe it is up to me to do it for them. It appears that the word of God is not true from Paul's perspective, but we see that it is all because of his own misunderstanding. As he explains right here, God did, and God is keeping his promises to the people of Israel. God is keeping his promise to all of the people that he has called. It is just that the people that God has called turns out to not be the people Paul thought they were. That's not God's fault. That's on Paul. Just to be clear, God has also made a way for all of Israel to be saved. In fact, anyone who repents and comes to Jesus and submits to being sanctified by the Holy Spirit can indeed be saved. 
But if Israel is not willing to do that, if Israel is not willing to entertain the prospect of their own wretchedness and their need to change, that too is not God's fault. That's on Israel. The way has been made for them and the door has been opened wide to them as it is to all people. And anyone who wants to come in can come in. They just can't come in on their own terms. Paul wants to bring Israel in, but Paul wants to bring Israel in on Israel's terms and not on God's terms. You don't have to change Israel. You don't have to be different. You can worship who you want, do whatever you want. God just loves you. Everything is fine. Come, he wants to make this humanistic gospel. Hmm. He suspects that God wants the same thing. No terms. And because the people of Israel are not as blessed as Paul thinks they should be, Paul concludes that God's word is questionable. But God's word has proven true. And his people, his promised people, are right now being gathered home and prepared for eternal life. All is actually going according to God's plan. And Paul and Calvin, if you see it differently, it is only because somewhere in your theology, if you see it differently, it is only because somewhere in your understanding of the word of God, you have a foundational misunderstanding. But it's not the end of the world. As long as your misunderstanding remains a struggle within yourself, as long as that misunderstanding is under the auspices of the Holy Spirit, just like Paul, you'll be fine. But if you go beyond mere speculation and begin to try to implement some other more palatable gospel other than the word of God as it has been given and you expose other people to a false doctrine, the very curse that you wish for and the separation that you have so boldly faced down may be your fate. God's word is not wrong. Neither are the thousands of years of consistent biblical interpretation all incorrect. No. You are wrong. Your conscience is wrong. Your strong emotions are inappropriate. And your supposed solutions to the theological dilemmas that the Bible text can cause are unworkable. So you're saying, even if I don't understand, I have to just agree with whatever God does. No, no, that doesn't mean that you will ever wholeheartedly agree with all that God has done. But what it does mean is that you must learn how to accept the truth regardless of those misgivings. And you must not check out of reality to make a world and a God that is more worthy of your respect. He is who he is. He has done what he will do. And he will not repent. And he will not relent. Hmm. Paul continues to elaborate. Because he's not finished, uh, he's not finished making us uncomfortable just yet. He says something that ruffles the ethical feathers even more. Listen to what he says. This is the word of promise, verse nine. This is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but there was also Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Listen to this. For though the twins were not yet born. And though the twins had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls. It was said to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. You heard that right. Wait a minute. They're not even born yet. And you're already casting judgment. They haven't done good or bad yet. And you're already saying that you love the one and hate. What is going on here? Neither of them has done anything right. Neither of them has done anything wrong. And God chose the one over the other. I got a question then. What if it turns out that Esau is a better man than Jacob? Then what, God? What if Esau turns out to be the more honorable one? Then what, God? Well, from scripture, that appears to be what happened. Esau was a hardworking man serving his father and serving his family. And the one that God said he loved turned out to be a trickster, a liar, and a cheat. Did God make some kind of mistake? Maybe you got the twins mixed up. I know they're identical, but maybe you got them mixed up. You love, you're loving the wrong one. This is the good guy. How did you come to this conclusion? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem fair. And my moral compass cringes at God's determination here. It is a fact that the Bible says that Esau was morally better than Jacob. So why would the one who is doing everything right be forced to serve the one that is doing everything wrong? Paul just told you. Because salvation is not about who is right and who is wrong. Salvation is not about who is good or who has been bad. Salvation is not about who has been rich or who has been poor. Paul says here that the purposes of God, why would you love that guy and say, that's my choice? And we have to be careful about this. Sometimes you want to bring God down to your moral standard. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Higher than the heavens is above the earth is my thoughts from your thoughts and my ways from your ways. You think you know what's right. That's why you're trying to revamp my gospel because you think you know a better way than I know. And you are wrong. Your strong emotions and your conscience will send you to hell. Slow down. Don't talk too fast. Don't know more than you can know. And more than anything, know I'm going to say it the way I say it at home. More than anything, know when to leave God alone. That's some of the old country talk. I'm going to say it again over here. Know when to leave God alone. Because while he may seem like he has on kid gloves, God has teeth. And if you keep grieving the Holy Spirit, you can run into a real problem. Know when to leave God alone. Know when to accept his choices as his choices and leave him alone. Everything that God does, God does only with what he owns. And you own nothing. It was according to God's choice. That's what he said. That's the explanation God gives. His choices do not always align themselves squarely with our ideals or with our moral sensibilities. But we must not abandon God and we must not abandon God's word just because we have mixed feelings about how he goes about running his universe. God does whatever God chooses. And when what God chooses does not align with the way that I think things should be, 
as a mature believer, as a mature follower of Jesus Christ, and as one who fears God, I humble myself. I accept the truth as God has revealed it, and I humbly say, it is what it is. And it is what it is because God has so willed it. And his thoughts are higher than mine and his ways far surpass my ways. It is what it is, even if I don't think it is the way it should be. Let's pray. Father God, you are so loving and so gracious to us. You are the friend that sticks closer than any brother. And we repent and we apologize today if we have become too familiar with you. So familiar with you that we think we can change your precious things that we can rearrange your house. We confess today that there are many things about your word that we don't understand. There are many things that you do and have done that in our own human mind seems to make no sense. We confess today that we do not understand. And we commit today to accept your word as you have revealed it to us. And while we may continue to struggle within, wrestling to make sense so that our consciences can rest in our faith, we commit to you today that we will humble ourselves, that we won't come too close to your fire to interrogate you but that we ask that you send your light and send your fire, fire to interrogate us. Help us to see where we are missing the mark. Give us the power and the ability to change and to repent. In Jesus' name.